live in a church culture, at least here in America. I've grown up here in the Silicon Valley most of my life, so I've seen this happen a lot, um, where I think that, that pastor and congregation sometimes are, are unsure of each other's commitments to one another, and it can be a bit tenuous. Um, I want you to know, I, I talked to Ben last night, uh, one last time. We talked to each other all the time. We work very closely together, and um, I reaffirmed to Ben some things, and Ben reaffirmed to me some things. I said, look, buddy, I'm about to go public with what we're about to do with this in terms of just commissioning you as a pastor and, and continuing what we've seen. And I just want to let you in on that because uh, you need to know as well that, um, that I, am not, uh, I am not anywhere but here. God has put this local body on my heart and on my mind, and this is where I'm pouring in. Uh, I've been here since day one, five years ago, and uh, Lord willing, I'm going to be here uh, at the 10-year mark and the 15-year mark. I, I want to be around and pour into you people. I love you people. God's put you on my heart. Ben feels the same way. Um, and I called him. I said, Ben, I need to know, you, do we have each other? Are we in this together? And, and Ben's here. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful thing because um, there's always always a lot of opportunities out there to do a lot of different things. And you've heard me say this from the front many, many times. Evaluate your calling. Periodically evaluate your calling. If you've been serving in youth or children's or whatever, periodically stop and say, Lord, is this still where you want me? Have you changed me? Am I supposed to be up elsewhere? But if not, if the answer is no, if it's still to be pouring in there, then pour in there with all that you have and know that that's from God. And, and that's a beautiful thing. So I just want to say that to you. We say that to each other. But sometimes congregations are left wondering, gosh, I, I got wind of this. Or last time at my old church, the guy, anytime the leaders came up, I got nervous because someone was going somewhere or someone had fallen in sin or something. And, uh, and I just want to tell you, uh, the same way we would reassure one another in marriage or as a family, um, we're not going anywhere, Lord willing. So uh, with that, God may call me to Ethiopia tomorrow and start an orphanage. I don't know. But if he does, uh, if he does, it'll totally be from him and, and uh, not from me. So listen, open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to get started there uh, this morning. Children, welcome. We love having you in here. There is an extra vibrancy and, and animation to the morning when you guys are here. Love it. You don't even need coffee to get it going. That's the cool part about it. Um, we're going to get started in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Um, and as you're turning there, uh, I'm not sure who it was, but probably back in the, in the 60s or, or maybe 70s sometime in, in football's glory years, two guys got together. They're like, look, God, let's, let's bring this sign to the game. It'll be really clever. It's like defense. And then we'll shout defense and we'll get the whole crowd worked up doing this. And uh, it's stuck. I mean, it's a great little sign. Usually it's two guys. Their shirts are off. They're in Boston. You know, they're like, hey. Um, and today, at the game, you'll probably see, they'll probably pan across the crowd, and you'll see this sign right here, right? Defense. And as I was looking at this sign and just kind of, you know, rolling over uh, these things, I think there's actually some spiritual truth that we could glean uh, today as you're watching the Super Bowl. By the way, I had a, a youth one time. We had this Super Bowl party, and, and uh, all the kids would come out to the youth room, and we'd, we'd watch on the big screen and stuff. And this one girl, she was like, I don't care about football. I hate football. And I'm like, I don't care. Do you love Jesus? She said, yeah. I said, then watch the Super Bowl. She goes, she goes, what? You know, here's her youth pastor talking. She goes, how does that tie in? I said, here's how it ties in. I said, do you know how many people are going to be watching the Super Bowl today? 
And she goes, no. I said, neither do I. But it's a large, large number. A vast majority of people are watching it. Now, watch it, if nothing else, to have this shared experience and to have this, this conversation, just, just to be in on what's going around in culture. You don't have to care about football, the players, or anything. You don't have to really engage that much in the game. And I'd caution you on some of the commercials. You know, some years it's good, some years it's bad, but, but there's some that you've got to really fast forward to. But, but, but there are some funny ones. So just be there and kind of engage in it. I would challenge you the same way. That's, that's one of the ways we get to, to kind of share in with what's, what's happening in culture. A lot of people are going to watch Super Bowl today. Here are some things you could, you could learn spiritually, okay? There are clear teams today going at it. It will be crystal clear who's on whose team, okay? There's a war going on. When they do the super slow-mo of the giant guys that are doing this, and they're like, you know, and the spits flying, and all that stuff. There's a war going on in there, okay? There are winners and losers, a prize will be awarded at the end of the game. And then defense wins championships. Now, that's not always true, but it's an axiom that holds true much of the time, that a good defense wins championships. Now, you can draw your own spiritual conclusions there, but read your Bible and watch the Super Bowl. You'll see it. You'll see spiritual truth come out in, in, in today's game. We're starting a series today uh, called uh, Grow to Go. And for those of you who are very astute, you walked in and saw a giant banner that uh, now that I've pointed out, you won't be able to miss it. But some of you saw it, some of you didn't. We're starting this series, and it's really a series on um, apologetics. Apologetics is a different kind of word. We throw it around in church a lot. People don't really know what it means, so I'm here to enlighten you this morning. Uh, apologia is a word that means this, to give a defense, written or speech, or now there's really films that, that, that use this, this medium of film to do the same thing. It's to give a defense of something. We're concerned specifically with providing an intellectual defense of the truth claims of the Christian faith. We just sang this song that said this, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith. I see a near revival stirring as we pray and seek. We're on our knees. Heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. We're going to dive into some things today. In fact, if we were in a submarine, you'd hear the, the dive call, you know, the alarm going off. That we're going to go in kind of deep with some stuff. Some of it will get kind of technical for you. Today is kind of an introduction. But the reason we're doing this growing is to go. And I'll kind of explain that and touch on that some more shortly. R.C. Sproul is an author who has written many books, a couple of them very accessible, very short, and some of them very thick and scholarly and intricate. And, um, and, he, put, and he said this, uh, Christianity is based on far more than human reason, but by no means less. And the discipline of apologetics is something that was born out of persecution. It started right away in the Gospels. As you read your Bibles, you are reading apologetics, people who are writing to defend the Christian faith. So you'll just, you'll just now have a name put next to it, that that's what you're doing. Here's what apologetics involves. It involves proof or vindication. That is, giving evidence through philosophy, through science, through historical evidence through logic and reason to give a positive picture of the Christian worldview. Here's a valid question that every one of you hopefully asked or are currently asking. Is 
Christianity valid? Is it true? I mean, doesn't that make what's, what's, what, what a religion is worth is whether or not it's true? So apologetics involves proof. You are not going to make a decision today without any kind of proof. If I just told you something, you wouldn't just go along with that. You would want some validation. That's a part of what it involves. It also involves defense. That is defense against assorted attacks, misunderstandings, overemphasis. It involves clarifying what the Christian belief is. And we're going to get into this more in detail shortly. But the reality is the uh, the Christian faith has been under attack from day one. Number three, it involves refuting. To refute is to show something as false that is opposing your view of things. So you hold a position, someone else holds a position that's opposite of that, refuting is to go and disprove that. Now to take that one and separate it out from the other parts of apologetics proves absolutely nothing. If I spend all of my time going around proving all the other world religions false, that doesn't mean Christianity is true. That's really just a waste of breath to only do that, but it certainly involves a part of it. In a courtroom, you'll hear something said, and you'll say, yeah, that kind of sounds right. Yeah, that sounds true. And then what happens? You'll hear the cross-examination come, right? And say, oh, yeah, what about that? What about that? Proverbs talks all about that. We we catch up to the Bible all the time. Finally, the last part uh, is that it involves persuasion. So here's the reality is that someone could stand in front of you and make a case for something and show you all the evidence and satisfy your curiosities and and and, and give you the facts that maybe you've never seen before. But the, but the reality is, is that we're people filled with emotion and will, and we're, we're created spiritual beings. And so at the end of the day, there's a, there's a persuasion element to that, that um, the last thing I would really want to do is to arm our people to go around winning the argument, to go around just shutting up other people in, in, in maybe they're not so well thought through presuppositions. What we're asking for people is this. Jesus asked for commitment. In fact, he actually demanded followers, right? In the sense that the choice is left up to the individual, but he he commands us to leave everything and to come and to follow him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And and so that's our goal. If, If you look at the Great Commission, it's to make disciples. It's not to present the facts in such an airtight case that it paints people into a corner, and, and there they are. It's to win them. It's to woo them. And think of how the loving Heavenly Father, those of you who are following Christ today, think of how the loving Heavenly Father had to break through your will, not just your intellect, had to break through your spirit and emotion, not just your mind. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14. <coughs> you can follow along with me if you're there. It's uh, starting in part B of, of 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In this passage, Peter's actually giving us both the reason and the importance 
of apologetics. Apologetics is something that is commanded to every believer, that, that we're to be ready and prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. What I want to point your attention to is this, that as you study, as you either bolster up on this or revisit issues that you've settled in your own heart and mind because you've done the study in the past, or for the very first time are diving into this, I would invite you to do this as an act of worship. Some of you love to read. Some of you love to study. Some of you love to get in there and, and discover things. And that can be just like entertainment to you. But, but I would say don't, don't do this as entertainment. Don't do this even for yourself. But do this as an act of worship. One way that we set apart Christ as Lord is to engage our mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm inviting you on this multi-week series. I'm not sure exactly how long we'll go yet. But multi-week series, and I would say engage your heart and mind in worship as you do this. It's one of the ways that we set apart and honor Christ Jesus as our Lord. And there's also a moral component here. And that is this, that we're to answer every, uh, every question or attack or, or whatever it is, even the abusive ones, even, even ones that are, that, are, that are hurled at us with, with impure motives such that by our good conscience and with our, uh, with our good conduct and our clear conscience, that the gospel in Jesus Christ would actually be elevated. One of the things we're going to look at is Jesus and Christianity amongst other religions. And, and do you know that, that some of the dying words of Jesus Christ were these? Not curse those who are killing me for being God, but what? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're doing this in ignorance. He's heaping out blessing on those who are actually killing him instead of curses, like I would expect. Every Christian in every age must obey this command to defend because of the fact that we are under attack. Now, let me just point out some of the early Christian uh, attacks that went on and then we'll kind of move our way in, into the present. But, but early on, um, they were actually thought, early Christians were thought to be disloyal to the government because uh, Caesar was Lord, and people were commanded to, 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 to call out to Caesar as Lord. And the Christians would refuse to do that. Justin the Martyr, if your last name is The Martyr, it's just, it wasn't an easy life, okay? I mean, I'll just tell you that right now. If that's what you're known as, um, kids, a martyr is one who died for the faith. So Justin the martyr is actually a, a hero, the martyrs of the faith who are, who are so unwavering in their, in their devotion to Christ that they would actually lay down their, their lives down for it. Justin the martyr described it this way um, in his day and age. He, he, he explained that although you think that we're, we're traitors to the government and we're being insubordinate to the government, actually look at us. We're model citizens. And our own scriptures say that, that there's a great place for government. But it's overstepping your bounds for us to bow to Caesar as Lord. Because we have one Lord and Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. And we will not bow. No matter what you do to us, we will not bow our knee to another. We just sang about this, that every knee and tongue are going to confess and bow one day Jesus is Lord. So the Christians refuse to do it. Ultimately, their good conduct and their clear conscience actually put to shame those who were persecuting and killing Christians for that very reason. 
Christianity was misunderstood and under attack because they thought they were insubordinate and trying to rise up a new government organization. Not the case. Did you know that early Christians were actually accused of being atheists? Now, that seems kind of odd to us in our day and age. We say, why, why is that? Here's why. In, in the early uh, you know, 161 to 188 uh, AD-ish time frame, there is a pantheon of gods. There's many, many gods. And because the Christians wouldn't acknowledge them as gods and even expose them as false gods and certainly wouldn't worship them as gods, they were accused of being an atheist. <laughs> they were actually killed for being an atheist. There's, there's this one guy um, in, in, uh, in ancient times. His name was Polycarp. He was in his late 80s at this time. He was a Christian bishop. And he was before Marcus Aurelius, emperor of Rome. And he was brought before him on charges of being an atheist. Now, Marcus Aurelius was there, and there was a stadium full of people, and he was wanting to give him a way out. He was actually an older and respected guy. And so he said this. He said, basically, recant and say these words, and then you'll, you'll have a chance to live. Away with the atheist. Here's what Polycarp did. Polycarp's there. I, I imagine he had a little smile on his face. I don't know. But he looked up to the crowds, and he went like this. He pointed to the crowds, and he said, Away with the atheist. And they killed him for it. They killed him because he wouldn't bow his knee to what was the generally accepted truth of the day, which is that there are many, many gods. Other kinds of things that Christians were accused of. There was the practice of the love feast. Well, the love feast had a weird sound to those outside the uh, Christian circles, so they accused them of debauchery and all kinds of evil sexual sin, which was a bit ironic uh, because the kingdom was known for just such kinds of things. And, and yet a love feast was really Christians sharing a common meal and celebrating that way. Finally, here's one more. They were under attack because they were accused of being cannibals. You know what cannibals were? They were accused because of communion. And apologists had to come along and clear that clear up the Christian position and what we're doing with the bread and the wine as we celebrate communion. So it is that Christianity is and was under attack. How about in today's day and age? Hebrews 13.3 is a powerful verse. And I want to just read for you some things uh, from, from other parts of the country to get a clear picture of things that we're not often privy to. In Iran, December 23rd, 2011, a little more than a month or two ago, two days before Christ, uh, Christmas, there's three Christian pastors that remained in detention after their church was ambushed, raided at 11 a.m. during their service. The people who came in arrested everyone present, including children, and they confiscated Christian literature, computers, audiovisual equipment, and cell phones. Men, women, and children were forced to run a gauntlet of hooded, obscenity-screaming agents to reach their awaiting buses. This isn't ancient times. This was a couple months ago. How about in Egypt? After the conclusion of Egypt's parliamentary election last week, many Christians fear that the government controlled by the Islamists would lock them into second-class status and increase persecutions against Christians. However, some believers rejoice that the recent wave of persecutions has prompted many nominal Christians to turn to Christ for solace. 
One guy said this, it seems the Egyptian Christians are going through a spiritual revolution since the recent persecutions began. More and more are becoming true believers. Many are witnessing more and sharing the gospel. How about in Africa? This is in Nigeria. Nine Christians were martyred on January 5th, 2012, as a church was attacked. During the funeral service that happened on January 19, for those that were killed, many believers rededicated their lives to Christ, and others came to faith in Christ for the very first time. The leaders of the prayers, catch this, and see if this doesn't sound like like the one that they claim they're following. The leaders of the prayers encouraged the church to be more prayerful than complaining. He said the Lord knows how to fight his own battle in his own way and that we should not revenge whatsoever. I could go on and on and on and on. It seems that one of the classes that does not rise to the level of getting attention here on the talk show circuit, on all kinds of things, is Christians being killed for their faith today around the world. Not only killed, but mistreated, stolen from, beat down, imprisoned, separated from families. Horrific crimes against Christians all around the world. How about us? There's misunderstanding and mistreatment that goes on here, but probably nothing like around the world. Right now we live in a window of time where we are to do what the passage in Hebrews says, and that is to pray for our brothers and sisters and think of them because they are a part of our body and to pray for them in such a way as if we're the ones who are actually in chains. Families, this might look like this. This might look like once in a great while sitting down to a very, very simple of, uh, meal of, of some simple rice that's lukewarm in solidarity with those around the world as Christians who, because they're Christians, are eating lukewarm rice, and that's it tonight. And as our stomachs growl, and as our taste buds complain, and as our children wonder what we're doing, we're just saying they're a part of the body of Christ. They're our family, and they're hungry tonight. And tonight, we're going to eat simply just to remember them and to identify with them. but maybe that would have a second effect for us. All through history, Christians being persecuted only served to spread the faith. It only served to elevate the message. It only serves to stream and weed out those who, who would be there as charlatans preaching the gospel for gain. Some of us got to see this firsthand uh, in, in New Orleans. I know that uh, the Roses went and some others uh, down to New Orleans and got to see where hundreds and hundreds of churches existed down in the Ninth Ward District and such. And then after the hurricanes, you know who stayed and rebuilt and loved on the neighborhood and lived in terrible conditions? It was the real Christians. It was the followers of Jesus. It was the disciples of Christ. And as persecution came, as darkness came, the lightness shone all the brighter. What does that say for us in America? What does that say for us who probably didn't think uh, if we would eat this morning, but what we would eat this morning. We had to make choices, right, about which shampoo to use and what clothes to put on, maybe even what car to drive to church. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying that's where we live. And so when we pray for revival, just know what you're praying for. Most often that means, Lord, turn up the heat. 
strengthen us. <clears throat> the whole world in, in this valley that we live in uh, lives outside of your doors. They're your neighbors. They live on your left and on your right. I met with a friend last week over at Dolby, and just walking through there, I saw many, many nationalities. Some of you work at Cisco and Google and Lockheed and uh, down, you know, down the street at Jamba Juice. And what happens is you can just look around and see that the world has come here. Here's what apologetic series is going to mean to you. Here's the reality of, of the U.S. That your view of Christianity being not only better but, but the only way, as Jesus said it was, is not only uh, under attack, but it's seen as intolerant and hateful. Your morality is rapidly becoming regarded as antiquated and irrelevant. Your freedom to worship freely as you see fit is starting to be questioned in some different ways. There's starting to be some, some misunderstanding about Christians. I don't know if cannibalism or atheism is going to be leveled at us anytime soon. That would be interesting, and we'd know how to deal with that. But there are misunderstandings, aren't there, about what a Christian believes and what a Christian's all about, and why are you doing that, and why are you spending so much time, and what is that all about? And if you're raising children today, the call is all the more urgent. I would say at the start of this, by the way, as we talk about um, the reasons for our faith, if you are leaning on me and others who will teach from this pulpit in the next several weeks to lay that out, that's, that's woefully under-influencing your children. I got frustrated as a youth pastor as I would see high school kid after high school kid after high school kid abandon the faith after taking Philosophy 101 at West Valley College, at San Jose State, off at UCLA or whatever else. And, and some of that fell on me, and I repented and changed how I did things. But let me just say this, parents and family, Kel said it really well. We hold this banner up high. It's not to abjugate our responsibility as a church, but we are to come alongside you as you train up your children spiritually. You know what this means, moms and dads? It means this. For the next six to eight weeks, we're keeping our older, younger kids in here. And I know that sounds really confusing, but I think it's third through fifth we decided on. Um, and what we want is this. We want that as we talk about the existence of God, as we talk about is the Bible a reliable source to build a morality and a lifestyle on? What about Christianity amongst other religions? Did Jesus Christ really have to die? As we dive into these topics, I want you diving into them and thinking about them, and I want your kids thinking about them as well. And that as you talk and discover, you are going to be stretched and grown as you, as you think about it. So what do we do about this? What do we do about the, the, the different things that are, that are surrounding us? Some ignore it. Some say it doesn't affect me. I'm not in prison. I mean, sure, I'll pray once in a while, and I'll, I'll shed a tear at a, at a slideshow once in a while, but it's not really affecting me. That goes clearly against the commands of Scripture, that we're one body. And when one part of your body, you smash your pinky with a hammer today, I promise you, your ear's going to care I mean, your whole body is going to care that that thing's hurting. That's the picture of the church. So that, that is not left open for us, but people do it. Some fret and worry about it. I get, there's so many emails that flood around, oh, this, this is happening and that's happening and this is happening. And sometimes it's just whipping up into a frenzy and a, and a, and a, and a worry. 
And yet we're commanded in Scripture, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything be in prayer with thanksgiving. So pray about everything, worry about nothing. If we have a sovereign God, then you say, God, you're sovereign. You saw this coming. You're working a plan. You're the grand weaver. Help me to find out what you're doing in this. Help me get on it, whatever that is. So we bring it to prayer. We don't bring it to worry. Some would retaliate in like manner. Uh, there's a great story in Luke chapter 9. I say it's great because it, 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 um, it reveals some of our personalities. I grew up with three brothers. I promise you, one brother punches you in the arm, you don't pray blessing on him. Not at first, at least. You rain down as much terror back as you can, right? And you try to punch harder. If he's older, you punch and run. That's what you do. That's why I'm so fast. Two older brothers. Luke chapter 9 says this. And when his disciples, by the way, Jesus and some uh, sons of thunder was their nickname. So that just, you know, you know, kind of clues you in a little bit. They're approaching this town. This town, this, this Samaritan town rejects the message. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. <laughs> Here's the picture. Disciples are cruising with Jesus. Crazy things are happening. They're praying for things to happen. They're happening right there. There's obvious signs and wonders accompanying this man of God. They come into this Samaritan village. There's already prejudice going on here built into them from the time of being a little kid. They reject the message. Eh, we think your Jesus is nothing. Sons of thunder are like, hot dog. Here we go. Jesus, what's the recipe? What are we calling down? They want to they just clear these guys off the face of the earth. And Jesus rebukes them for doing it. Doesn't say how. I don't know how that conversation went. And then they just want to do another village. You know what I see in that? I see me. I see me wanting to retaliate in like manner when someone comes at me with, with my faith. And someone comes at me in an attacking mode. And my natural mode would be to attack back. You want to come argue with me? I'll argue with you. You want to be quick-witted with me? I'll be quick-witted with you. You want to talk fast? I'll talk fast with you. And we'll go on and on. And, and I just say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, rebuke me when you need me to and shut me up when you need me to. Finally, uh, there's the option. I suppose there's many, many other options. But there's the option, isn't there, to just obey? Obey the command that all this is coming. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal that's happening as if it's something strange. Read your history. Read your Bible. Get on the Internet and look at... Voice of the Martyrs and other websites that just give basic reports of what's happening, factual reports that you can go verify. It doesn't seem to make it into your, your regular news stream. Obey, confident in God and simply. Obeying will involve, let me just give you three things. You can write them down if you want. It involves learning. I am challenging you to drench your attention in the witness of the scriptures during the series. Some of you are on a reading program, and I'm thrilled about that. We've had a good time dialoguing online about how that's going. I hope you're keeping up. Uh, Andy, raise your hand for a second. There's your personal trainer. He's there to wake up at 5 in the morning with you, feed you raw eggs, and go jogging with you if that's what it takes to get you in, in your Bible. Okay? Think Mick in uh, Rocky. He's going to be there to help push you and help encourage you along. 
But here's what I'd say. Drench your attention. Get your imagination wrapped around what the scriptures are telling us. So many things, just by following a Bible reading program and reading through the Bible, you, you, you just say, wow, God, your truth is everywhere. Um, it would be ludicrous if I uh, went off to college, showed up my first day at school, and was, was astounded that they had a bill for me and they wanted me to pay for my education. That's, that's ludicrous. We all expect to pay through the nose for higher education, right? Isn't it interesting that sometimes we can come along to a topic like this and say, you know what, I just want to know this stuff. I, I, I just want to know the reasons for my faith. I just want to start learning about how to logically reason without putting any effort into it. Let me just say this at the start. If obedience means learning and growing in your knowledge, you're going to pay for it in some way, shape, or form. You're going to pay for it. Expect to pay for it. Just expect up front, this is worthwhile and this will cost me something. So then you can begin to make rational choices. Maybe it's just that I'm not willing to put out the cost to learn this stuff. Maybe I'm content in a kind of blind faith. Maybe no one's asking me and I don't feel the need for this. And that's kind of back to square one of ignoring it and just kind of burying your head. If obedience means learning, it's going to cost you in some way. It also is going to involve bravery. There is a great little word that, that has been kept alive. Uh, I went and found some of the roots of it seem to be in the Shakespeare area. But it's the word metal. If someone says, someone says, man, you've got some metal to you, M-E-T-T-L-E, it means that you've got some courage and some bravery and some internal character and inherent character that is just in you. The word actually came from the word metal, M-E-T-A-L. It means that there's something solid to you. And I'll tell you that standing up in a room full of people that are all saying one thing and being the lone person to raise your hand and say, I think different than that takes some metal. In Philosophy 101 at West Valley College, God, by his grace, gave me the metal to raise my hand and be berated by my philosophy head teacher that whole semester as a Christian from day one on. And I praise God for that. Because you know what it did? It drove me deeper into learning. And say, I'm sure there's a good answer for that, but I don't know it yet. I need to go do my homework and start figuring this out. Finally, it's going to involve some perseverance. Many simply don't have the grit and determination to land on a truth and stay there. Here's why. We live in a land of diversions. Okay, I mean, today... At your fingertips, most of you. There are so many different things to divert your attention from matters of family, of finances, of problems, of important things that you think are really important on your deathbed, but not today. Not today. And so it's just going to take some perseverance to say, if, if I don't really know for sure, we keep quoting this Bible, we keep talking about the Bible, if I've never really gone and done the study, what is, what is this versus the other holy books? Just because something claims it's the word of God, don't buy that hook, line, and sinker. You don't do that in other realms. Why on earth would you do that with the Bible? Maybe it's just that there hasn't been perseverance. Maybe no one's issued the challenge to say, persevere, stick to it until you can land on a truth and follow where the evidence leads you to. Here's why this won't be easy. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, tells us some things. It tells us about a message and messenger, and it shows us why this is not going to be easy. Now, this is for those of you who missed the fact that Jesus was killed and lived a relatively brutal life um, and said to come and follow me, to take up your cross and follow me. Or maybe you missed the book of Acts where his followers in the early church were persecuted for their faith and misunderstood and beaten up and thrown in jail. So what I'm saying is that those evidences alone should have shown us this won't be easy, right? But in case we somehow breezed by that, we spiritualized that, we made that, you know, uh, really palatable, let's, let's read from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Follow along with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Are you starting to get a picture here of why this is going to be challenging? Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or silliness to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's talking about our message. Now let's look at the messenger. Continue on, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that we human beings... Uh, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The message is going to be a stumbling block to the really religious Jewish people, an absolute folly as you preach a crucified Lord to the Gentiles. Oh, by the way, messengers, you're going to be called as little cracked pots, nothings, nobodies, throwaways. People will not look at you and be impressed as you walk in with your flowery speech and your amazing nobility and worldly worth. And all of it is by God's design. All of it is so that the message of Jesus Christ, so that the cross of Christ might be elevated and we wouldn't look to a single individual, we wouldn't look to a single organization or the powerful way in which they do things to save us, but that we would look only to Jesus Christ, our one and only Savior, the only mediator between a holy God 
and an imperfect, sinful people. I mean, when you step back and look at it, 1 Corinthians 1 lays it out pretty brilliantly to say, wow, God, looks like you knew what you were doing. So that no one can boast, and it's all God getting the glory. As you embark on this journey of learning to defend the faith, maybe you're learning to defend the faith against your own doubts and the things that you're struggling with. Praise God for that. I just want to hold out truth to you. You follow where it leads. We'll go on this journey together. But I will say this, that life, at least here on this side of eternity, is about living with questions. Now, Christianity is not a blind faith. It's actually a rational faith built on solid historical and logical foundation. But any person with any belief system, with any explanation of the cosmos and our purpose and what's to be in the afterlife and all these things wrestles with a common enemy, and that is doubt and ambiguity. Because we don't have all the answers. We live confined in space and time, and so we're all forced to deal with ambiguity in life. We're forced to live with questions. There's kind of like this. Imagine a bag that you have over here, and the bag contains all the questions that you have about this life. And when you don't know what's going on or you can't figure it out, you just dump it in this bag. Here's the reality. You will always have a bag of questions. Every person you ever meet has a bag of questions because they're not God. They don't know it all. So therein lies both the challenge and some of the frustration, but therein also lies some of the excitement and the adventure uh, as, as, as Jesus woos us onward into, into more and more truth. Here's what I'm asking you to do with, with regard to some of the topics. Now, we might cover the topics that really hit on you and your world and what you're wrestling with and what your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers are wrestling with. We may not. If we don't hit on what you're personally wrestling with, I'd certainly offer myself as a resource, but, but look to other people as well and do your own study on it. Go start diving in. Here's what I would say. Look at your bag and do this. Go and grab one of the questions that is nagging at you the most, that's haunting you the most, and pull it out. And dive into that question. Persevere with that question. Do the hard work. Pay the price to do the study, to find out where the truth leads on that question so that you'll never be haunted by that question again. You can stand firm on that truth and be able to move on and build on things. I really believe there's a spiritual enemy that's putting this lie in the minds of people. You can never know. No one's ever got the answers, and so everyone's always got just a bag of questions. So leave them in there. You know what those questions do, though? They nag at you, and they just peck at you, and they hold you back. So do that. Take me up on that. Go and grab the question that nags you the most and go become an expert on it. You go do every research you can on that. If the resurrection from the dead is what has you hung up and you say, that's the one I just can't get over, go do the study on that. I will gladly help you. I've got books and books that I can direct you to and loan to you that will at least help engage the conversation. Read both sides. Read the critics of the Christian faith. We're going to examine from the front the critics, the historians that did not believe. It's going to blow your mind. Um, here's what I know. I know that you already know how to do this, and you already do this. Okay? I am going to throw up 
a few, I'm not going to throw up, that sounds weird. Some of you are like, wow, this is getting exciting. It's like a Gallagher concert, careful in the front section. Um, here was one of the biggies, brand wars in my day and age, okay? Pepsi and Coke. Now, right away, there's a few of you who have a visceral reaction to one of these logos. And you're like, get them, Coke! Or, you know, Pepsi, punch them! And you just, you, you want that to happen. These two brands have spent a ton of money. I'm in the furthest, most remote part of Ethiopia a couple of months ago. Guess what I saw? Coke signs. I mean, Coca-Cola is all over the place. I'm like, man, these people have just got their, their big pockets and they're, they're, you know, infecting the world. So is Pepsi. I'm not really partial. Um, but uh, if I were to keep going with this, um, see, yeah, if you're groaning, I've already got you hooked, okay? Now let me just, let me just keep going. There's, this is endless, right? I mean, we're, we're bombarded with this, okay? Um, and so, yeah, and you're like, oh, man! This is great. You can tell it's lunchtime. I mean, the electronics is sort of a response, but lunch. Um, so listen, on and on I could go. If, if I didn't get you in the first few, uh, you, just, you just keep them coming, okay? Um, so bring it back now. <laughs> you guys are all humming the tunes. You're like, I can have it my way. And Anyway. Here, here's, the, here's the truth of the matter. Here's what goes on when you talk about your favorite brand. You offer proof as to why that brand is better. You just do. You go around and tell it. You know what else you do? You give defense. When people, when people talk about things and say, yeah, what about? You defend that and say, well, here's why, though. And then you also refute. You say, let me point out all the ills and evils of that and why that's not good. And then you actually use your art of persuasion, depending on how strongly you feel about it, to sit there and dialogue. You know what you're doing? Apologetics. For something as potentially temporal and nominal as a cup of coffee. Right? Now, I promise you, some of these up here, you don't care one bit, but to some of you, the, 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 the car guys in here are like, how dare you mix Chevy and Ford? Just get that off the screen. I can't even focus while that's happening, okay? Now, some of that is just good marketing and just a lot of dollars that have dripped into your brain from the time you were little. But some of that is you genuinely believe in this product. You genuinely believe in the taste of that or the, or the validity of, of that. Now, now, here's the question that I want to um, level against you is this. What if the next time the name of Jesus Christ were drugged through the mud? That same visceral response that came up just by putting two images next to each other just came to the tip of your tongue and you actually made an audible sound because, because it just mattered so much to you. I want you to know we, we live in a culture where constantly, look for it, try to find Christians portrayed well on your TV screen. I think at like three in the morning, there's a few things on. I'm not really sure. My TiVo is hunting right now as we speak. By, by and large, Christians are viewed as, as nominal and out to lunch and out there. Honestly, some of that may be a really good thing. Because it, it puts you in a place not of marching in as egotistical, arrogant Christian who owns part of the town. 
like it was at one time in this country, but rather you come in very much as the underdog. And guess who gets the glory then? It's Christ. The message of Christ. By your good conduct, those who are heaping insults at you will actually begin to feel shame as they look at it and say, wow, a person's never done anything but reciprocated with undeserved kindness and love. Every week, we're going to have a very similar application. Here it is. As we learn and study and equip our minds and realize there are unbelievably large amounts of evidence, facts, verifiable truth that you sit there and can just hold out to people that the Christian faith is founded on, here's going to be our application. Rather than buying a bigger Bible so that you can hit people harder with it over their head, okay, is this. We're going to do something that Christians kind of immediately know what this means. It's code for something. But we're going to take up the towel. If I say take up the towel to a Christian, here's what they're thinking of. They immediately begin to think of Jesus Christ, who at one point in the Gospel of John, he records it this way, he then showed them the full extent of his love. And what he did was he, he stripped off his, his other clothes and he donned the servant's towel around his waist and he began to do the menial task of washing the disciples' feet of serving. Our application every single week after learning about some of these things is to go and serve. Next week, there's going to be a very large map of San Jose on our wall. I am asking you, church body, to commit to something. I'm giving you a week to pray about it, think about it, because I don't want you to make this lightly. But here's the commitment I'm asking you to do. If I were to ask you right now, every single one of you, you go share your faith this week with someone, most of you would have heart palpitations and start to think of why this is a bad week for that. Some of that is just, we just struggle with that. We do. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you, starting next week, we're going to make this commitment. And next week is the weekend before Valentine's Day. And as a tangible way to love our neighbors as ourself, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get out of your house, and I want you to walk around your block, and I want you to pray for every single home that you pass once a week for three months. So 12 times between Valentine's Day and it's going to end right around middle of May, I want you simply to walk around and pray for your neighbors. Now some of you live in a cul-de-sac and you say, honestly, I think six homes is enough for me. Fantastic. What I want you to do is identify, Lord, which six homes am I going to pray for? You are going to actually mark that out on a map next week. That's going to be part of your commitment. You are showing this cul-de-sac is covered in prayer. Rich Henderson and I had a meeting that I feel was a divine appointment a few weeks back as we talked through some different ideas. And what we thought was this. Rich kept using this word over and over, and I loved it. He said, let's just, let's just, let's just go on a little experiment. Let's just see, God, what, what, would, what would you do with your people praying for our neighbors once a week for three months? Now, as you walk around, here's what's going to happen. Your prayers are going to move from more general. Lord, bless this house. I pray to bring the light of the gospel to this home. Whatever, whatever evil is here and present, would you, just, would you just work your will in that and guard them against that? They're nameless. They're just a building to you. As you walk your neighborhood, 
I'm praying that what's going to happen is you're going to go from general to specific. You'll suddenly get to know their names as you see them out there because you're going to have the courage to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we live three doors down. It's been 20 years. Let me introduce myself. And you just introduce yourself, right? And you, and you, just, and you just meet your neighbors. We don't really live in a culture that, that, that does this well for, for, for the most part. And then as you're walking around and you're just praying for people, um, it's going to be once a week, and maybe do it even at different times of the day, and have the courage to do this. Have the courage that if someone's mowing their lawn, you walk up to them and say, you know what, um, I'm your neighbor, I live right down the street. I don't know if this is going to sound weird to you, but I believe in a God that answers prayer. Can I just pray for you? Is there anything I, I can pray for you? I'll give you the stats for my own personal life. On the streets of San Francisco, in the downtown areas of community, a mile away under the bridge at Almaden and Branham, 99.98%, give or take 2%. Um, always answer that question one way. Yes, you can pray for me. Here's my list. In suburban San Jose, Campbell, Morgan Hill, 50-50. You'll have some that say, no, I'm good. And that's fine. Say, okay. Don't call down fire. Don't be doing that. <laughs> That's not what this is about. Um, but, 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 but there will be some that, that God will have been moving, and they'll just say, um, you know what, I, I just, uh, I just got a, an email from my daughter. Don't say this. God bless you, sister. I'll pray for that. Have a good day. You know what made Jesus such an incredible defender of the faith? I mean, if there's anyone who could have blown anyone out of the water, isn't it Jesus? You know what Jesus was? He was an incredible listener. He was an incredible asker of questions. He drew people out. He actually got to the heart of the matter just by a really, really good question. So be a great listener. Really be available to people. You know people pay giant sums of money to therapists and counselors? Why? Because they listen to them. Man, I'd pay through the nose if you just really listen to me for 45 minutes. Here, I'll gladly come back next week and pay you some more. People long to be known and listened to. You have the opportunity to do that very, very simply. So I'm asking as a commitment next week, think on this. Don't come lightheartedly and draw on the wall. Do this as a commitment before the Lord. God, I am going to grow so that I can go. We serve a generous Father who gives to us out of his great mercy and abundance. We just want to reciprocate. By the way, I hope you come across someone with a broken fence, broken lawnmower, dirty rain gutters, whatever's needed. One of the things we have going is that May 19th is our next workabout. Every fall, every spring, we want that drumbeat to be, we're in your neighborhood to serve. We're here to be a blessing to this neighborhood. So this whole thing culminates with a neighborhood workabout. That means if in the middle of April you're meeting with someone, you realize they have a need, you don't have to hypothetically think, I bet we could get some people at our church. We have a pretty giving church. Instead, you say on May 19th, we have a team of people that are actually looking for ways to be a blessing. Can we come bless you and help put that fence back together for you? That's right in your back pocket. If they look at you and say, so you're, you're praying, are you a Christian? Yeah. So you actually believe in a virgin birth? You know what? You'll have been in a series where fresh on your mind are some of the questions and comments and dialogues and some of the facts and truths that are there. And you know what you'll be able to do? With gentleness, with respect, you could say, I sure do. Let me, let me share with you about it a little bit. You'll be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you simply by, by doing this. 
I want to invite the band up right now, and I want to pray, and then we will um, continue in uh, worship. Father, thank you for setting up even the creation in such a way, God, that we can know you. You've actually set up uh, things all around us, God, to, to reveal who you are. It's clear that you want to be known. It's clear that you are in the process right now of continuing to reveal yourself. Thank you, God, that as we look in the weeks ahead, as science continues to catch up to the Bible, um, God, we can, we can move forward with confidence. Thank you that you haven't given us all the answers, lest we be prideful, paint ourselves in a corner, and beat down and talk down to people. Would you fill us with your spirit, which humbly came, which stripped himself, Jesus, stripped yourself of deity to come and to be at our level and talk to us and interact with us and love on us and model for us what the good shepherd is like. Father, we have people in our neighborhoods who haven't tasted a single crumb of what unconditional love looks like. They've not tasted in a culture around them of what grace smells like and feels like. God, you've set us apart. You've called us to be on your holy mission. Would you wrestle with our hearts and our minds right now that we would lay down our wills that we'd lay down our lives. God, fill us with knowledge, fill us with the truth. Thank you that you've called the Tupperware, the paper towel, to be the ones that carry forth your work in the seemingly mundane, in the seemingly unimpressive. God, so many in this room are just walking testimonies of your grace in our lives. Thank you for that. You're merciful. You're good. We sing to you. We give to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.